This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 341. Hey, I'm Graham Baldwin, author of The Successful Speaker, Five Steps for Booking Gigs, Getting Paid, and Building Your Platform. Take your next step towards success when you listen to this. It's the Read to Lead podcast with my friend, Jeff Brown. Hello. Welcome to the podcast, the Read to Lead podcast. That is, I'm your host, Jeff Brown. I'm here because I believe that if you want to achieve success in your business and in your life, you need to be a lifelong learner. And the path to lifelong learning begins with intentional and consistent reading. Now, the podcast is going to help you narrow this reading list and bring you key insights and valuable ideas from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. Today, you and I are being joined by Roger L. Martin. We're going to be diving into his book, When More is Not Better, Overcoming America's Obsession with Economic Efficiency. I'll be asking Roger to share about the dark side of efficiency an argument against teaching with certainty, at least with regard to economic models, what you as a business executive can learn from a certain Miami Beach restaurant, and plenty more. Before we bring Roger in, just a quick programming note. In the coming weeks, we're going to hear from author Carrie Oberbrunner, who's been on the show a couple of times and one of my good friends. We'll be talking about his book, Unhackable. That's next week. Also, Dave McCune, author of The Self-Evolved Leader, And then on November the 10th, one of my favorite authors of all time will make a repeat visit. First time in six years, we'll sit down for a chat with the one and only Seth Godin. That's all coming up right here on the Read to Lead podcast. Roger L. Martin is Professor Emeritus at Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto, where he served as Dean from 98 to 2013 and as Institute Director of the Martin Prosperity Institute from 2013 to 2019. He's been named Global Dean of the Year in the past, as well as the world's number one management thinker. He's published 11 previous books, including Playing to Win with A.G. Laffley, which won the award for Best Book of 2012-2013 by Thinkers50. He is also a trusted strategy advisor to the CEOs of many global companies. His new book, the one we're diving into today, is called When More is Not Better, Overcoming America's Obsession with Economic Efficiency. Roger, it's a delight to welcome you, sir, to the Read to Lead podcast. Hey, thanks. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me, Jeff. When I was young, I grew up across the street from a young man named Roger Martin, who in high school drove me to marching band practice one summer. You didn't, by chance, happen to own a light blue Chevy Vega at one point, did you? (laughs) No, I didn't. And that is fascinating. There are Roger is not a very common name. Uh, And so it's interesting that you not only knew a Roger, you knew a Roger Martin. (laughs) Or as I used to call him, Roger. Uh, That was a a long time ago. (laughs) I have a a good name that uh, works in multiple languages, actually. (laughs) That's right. Well, uh, with regard to the book, Roger, let's begin with your description of the ultimate aim of the book. What was was your goal in, in writing it? Well, I love democratic capitalism. I think it's the best system out there. And I worried about 
the direction it's heading that won't be good for it and uh, uh, sustain the sustenance of it. And so the purpose of the book was to help alert us to some things that we need to change to safeguard democratic capitalism for the long haul. Mm. Uh, economists for a long time have used the metaphor of a machine to describe our economy. Talk about the issues that arise, Roger, when a machine is the metaphor of choice. Yeah, there's a, there's a couple that I think are really problematic. One is the machine metaphor leads economists to, to say we can break it into its subcomponents, optimize each, and then add them back up. Mm. Uh, that's That's one thing. And the second thing is you can perfect the machine. You can get it to its logical, optimal level. And so what we have, our economists, I think, are break it down, maximize each, make sure each is working well, and then add it back up. And it doesn't work that way. Hmm. Uh, so there are lots of connections between pieces of the economic puzzle, between trade policy and labor policy and antitrust policy and the like. And if you separate those out as sub-disciplines and act like you're ad- adding it back up, it won't add up to what you think <laughs> it, it should. And also, if you think that you can perfect it, you know, you, you figure out what has to be done and get it to perfect, then you'll fight hard. That's mm. why we have all these congressional you know, battles. You know, <laughs> this is the perfect way. And so we're going to fight for it. Your way is a different way. So it must be imperfect. And so you have these pitched battles over getting it perfect. And that is not, as it turns out, how the economy works. There is no perfect set of rules, regulations, policy steps that will make the economy perfect like a machine can be uh, can be perfect it's a living thing it's more like the amazon jungle yeah yeah speaking of of perfect and imperfect you call chapter two the the chain of imperfections can can you describe what you mean by that phrase sure the way we kind of manage the world which is a you know a complex thing that we try to deal with is we model it we say here's a goal that we want to achieve and the way we're going to achieve that goal is by doing these things because we think it's going to be better so our goal is to have greater customer loyalty for wells fargo and we say our model is the more accounts you have, the more loyal you'll be so that we then set up as a set of metrics and proxies for customer loyalty is number of accounts mm. uh, that each person has. Right. And then we have a set of incentive systems that encourage our employees to, to maximize the number of accounts per customer. The chain of imperfection is number of accounts per customer does not equal customer loyalty. Mm. Right. It is one measure of it, one proxy for it. And then the setting as a goal, getting the most of those is, again, imperfect. And so what you end up having is, in the case of Wells Fargo, millions of fake accounts opened Mm. because people in in the branches said, well, they're telling us to have more accounts per customer. Here's a way to do it. So the, there's this imperfection between this goal, which I think was a laudable goal, have highly loyal customers with deep relationships with you, get all the way through this chain to the idea that we'll open accounts whether they need them or not. <laughs> uh, and that kind of thing happens more often than we'd like to believe. We start mm-hmm. to believe our models our reality and you can have these simple kind of equations that say a complex thing called loyalty can be can be reduced to one measure mm. which we then pound away at in ways that don't get us what we want at all 
the subtitle of your book suggests a, a dark side to efficiency. There can there can be too much of, of a good thing, in other words. How does this lead us to a, a Pareto economy? I really sound like I know what I'm talking about, don't I? <laughs> no, you do. I think you've read the book, Jeff. <laughs> um, yeah, so you're right. The, the book talks about obsessive pursuit of uh, efficiency. And, I mean, some people say, oh, Roger, 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 be careful. But efficiency is good. Yes, it is. As I say, love is good, too, right? Uh, but obsessive love, the sort that causes you to beat up your part partner, uh, that's that's not that's not good. Similarly, obsessive pursuit of efficiency. What it's done is when we when we say there's an economic machine and we want to make it as absolutely efficient as possible, we get rid of all the slack, all the buffers in the system, and we put pressure. We open up all markets, we deregulate them, we, we globalize them, we fight for the lowest possible wages, so we outsource uh, every, everything to China or, else, or elsewhere. All of that has the effect of putting more pressure on economic systems, on markets, on labor markets, on industries. And what we've come to understand in the way that the complex adaptive systems work in the world is that when you put more and more pressure on them and reduce the costs of connection in them, you turn distributions that are more bell-shaped, normal Mm. distributions, to what you refer to, Pareto distributions. And that's what's happening. So American democratic capitalism is kind of predicated on the the basis of there will be, what, a giant middle class. Right. Mm. And then tales of rich people and poor people at, at, at both ends. That's kind of what we think we're going to get. And then we have a system that says well, we're going to tax the rich tail more heavily so that it can help us fund the people in the poorer tail so that they'll have a better life. That's a, a good economy. Well, if you put too much pressure on that kind of system, it'll turn Pareto, the 80-20 rule, where most people have relatively very little and a few people have a whole lot. That's what Wilfredo Pareto observed. He is an Italian who was studying land ownership in Italy in the late 19th century and discovered that 20% of Italian families owned 80% of the land. Well, that's a Pareto distribution, and that's not what we want in democratic capitalism. We want to have a bell-shaped distribution where people move, that that whole curve moves positively towards higher and higher incomes every year. That worked for 200 years for America. Mm. Uh, But in the last 40 plus years, since about the time of the bicentenary, that movement has ground to a halt and the shape of that curve is changing to one that's ever more Pareto. Mm. Uh, And that, I think, is... That's worrisome and dangerous. Well, as you say in the book, metaphors, uh, going back to that for a second, are, are so useful in helping us to understand complex ideas. And you mentioned maybe thinking about the economy like the Amazon rainforest instead of a machine. How might thinking of the economy that way better serve us ultimately, Roger? It, it gets rid of this idea that you can separate out the pieces. I mean, you, you can't 
separate the pieces of the economy and optimize each. They have interplay with one another, just like the rainforest. It's, mm. it's like the famous, you know, if a butterfly flaps its wings in the Amazon and causes a tornado in Mexico kind of right. thing. And we know that, right? You know that in your in your life. You can't segment down your life into individual parts that don't relate to uh, one another. Mm. What you do at work influences what you can do at home, how much time you have at home. All these things are interconnected and the economy is this that way. So if we think of it more as that system, we'll be better off. The other thing that is important to understand is that it's adaptive. So whatever rules you have in place in any system, any economic system, just like in the, in the jungle, the pieces of it will adapt naturally to it. Mm. If a tree has another tree growing next to it, it'll bend uh, to grow in a, in, a, in a direction that will get it more sunlight than would otherwise be the case. Mm. These systems always adapt. So if you put in place a set of rules and you assume that after you put in the uh, set of rules, people will behave the way they did before <laughs> the set of rules, right? Yeah, you're chuckling because, of course, that's that's goofball. <laughs> but but that's what we do all the time, right? right? We say we'll put in we'll put in place a kind of a rule that says if you are let's say a single mother, that all those single mom families will be helped out. You don't ask the question, will we get more of said families by having women kick their husband out of the house so that they, they can get the funding? Mm. No, we, we don't ask that enough. And that kind of adaptation kind of always, always happens mm. in any complex adaptive system. And so if we were understanding that, what we would do instead of instead of saying, we're going to create the perfect legislation, we're going to make school kind of funding uh, contingent on how well the kids in the class do on these standardized tests. And then then we're done. We've mm -hmm. got it all, all fixed. Then we find out that teachers are cheating and giving answers to students to make sure they get test scores higher. And it mm -hmm. absolutely you know does the opposite of what, what we hoped. Instead, we would say, we've got to keep tweaking and tweaking and tweaking. We can't have these broad, everything is going to work after we do this instead have legislation be designed to be tweaked and continuously improved. That would help us deal with the adaptive nature of the economy, which we can currently tend to not do. It reminds me of a story I read recently of, of those who were collecting unemployment due to COVID uh, were continuing to do so by their own admission because they'd rather stay at home making $600 a week than uh, go to work and make just a little bit more. <laughs> so, Jeff, that's a better example probably than the ones I gave you because right? it's a current one. That's adaptation. Mm. They change their fundamental behavior because of a new rule, new structure, and and it wasn't the one that we intended when we put that structure in place. That's adaptation. And, mm. and is it bad? No, it, it is the way life works. But then why do you have legislation that is that is permanent? Right? Mm. Mm. There's no sunsetting of it. Uh, generally. Now, that's not always the case. Uh, I point out in the, in the book, there's a great case for Canada where the absolutely most important financial services regulation, the central one is called the Bank Act. It regulates all of banking. Mm. It was put in place over 100 years ago, uh, 1871, and had written into the legislation itself has to be reviewed and revised every 10 years. And then actually, mm. they later switched it to every five years. So rather than saying, We've figured out how to regulate banks 
which when you think about it is crazy, right? <laughs> given how much changes. What they're saying is really we've attempted to do the best darn job we can right now in 1871, but in 1881, we better check and see whether a whole bunch of this stuff has to be rewritten for what ha has happened in the last 10 years, mm. in 1891, and 1901, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I don't think it's a real gigantic surprise that the Canadian banking system did marvelously during mm. the global financial crisis compared to the United States, in part because it had a system of regulation that was more consistent with a complex adaptive system than a perfectible machine. Right. And the right. perfectible machine in the U.S. wasn't wasn't that perfect. We had a cataclysmic crash mm. uh, that required massive bailouts. There were no bailouts in Canada, no banks in, in, in distress, kind of no nothing. Now, it has to do with many reasons, I'm sure. I don't want to say it's one thing, but that kind of approach that says we need to keep adjusting and tweaking. And, and again, all of your CEO listeners would know this in, intuitively, mm. right? that they have to keep watching what's going on in the, in the marketplace and tweaking their customer offer, tweaking their salary levels, tweak, tweak, tweak. That's life. But we have a mm. odd way of interpreting life into the sort of the political economic domain. And we try to make it something that it isn't, which is this perfectible machine mm. just isn't. Well, I should mention that Roger's book is divided into two parts, problem and solutions. And what we're talking about now is is, is sort of wading into the solution waters, uh, the sort of idea, at least in politics, why you recommend politicians write revisions into the laws that they make, right, is so that we can make those adjustments and be more adaptive. Absolutely. And I would make every one, like every single legislation you bring forward you, uh, and, and gets passed has a, a requirement for periodic revision and, and elimination if it ceases to be useful. Mm. What can business executives learn from places like Joe's Stone Crab of Miami Beach? <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I love that example. I can't tell you how many people who've seen the book say, oh, Joe's is one of my favorite uh, places like from all around the world. So what the Joe Stone Crab example is just an example of the most successful. It's the number one ranked grossing uh, uh, independent restaurant in, in America. How the management, Stephen Sowitz and Joanne Bass, his mother, manage it as a system where all the pieces of the puzzle have to fit together and they do not try to manage to eliminate all slack and be ultra efficient. In fact, they're inefficient, if you will, in ways that have made it a, a restaurant that's been, ar been around for a century and, and mm. prospering. So they make sure they pay the stone crab fishermen more than what they'd need to pay them because they care about making sure that it's an occupation that's continued mm. uh, over time. They say they want to make sure that their stone crab fishermen's sons and daughters want to go into the into the business. Mm. They pay their staff more than they need to pay their staff. And so they have continuity. People will stay five times longer than the industry as a whole. They have to make sure that they are a, a restaurant that's available to people of, of lower income. They keep a half fried chicken entree on for six ninety nine, even though it 
that's below their cost because stone crabs are very expensive entree and they want to make sure it's accessible uh, to everyone. All of those things treated as a system that you've got to nurture. You've got to nurture your employees. You've got to nurture your your purveyors. You've got to nurture your uh, client base. You've got to adjust over time, which they have, and not be slaves to what people would think of as being most efficient. Hmm. I remember Joan Bass, who's the mother who used to run it, and now now the son run it, says, they always tell me I'm being inefficient with the $6.99 half chicken entree. But she says, it's not inefficient. It's part of what makes Joe's Stone Crabs a great place to come. And that's that's the kind of rejection of narrow-minded hmm. measures of efficiency and looking at it more broadly that's important. It's like Costco. You know, Costco pays its workers way more than minimum wage in the retail industry, even though it's a place in the sort of the low cost club store space, because they have a broader definition of efficient. You know, Mm. they're efficient when they have happy, well-paid employees who don't worry about putting food on the table because they're making 22 bucks an hour where somebody else is making 12 bucks an hour. They have carefully designed schedules that work with their lives. They're slack in the store, so they're not racing around. And they know that gets them in the end way higher sales per square foot, way higher profit per square foot because they have been, if you will, uh, narrow-mindedly inefficient and (laughs) broad-mindedly efficient. And happier employees and happier customers to go along with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, we've talked about solutions with regard to business and solutions with regard to politics. Let's turn finally to to education. Uh, What argument, Roger, would you offer against the inclination to, quote, teach with certainty when it when it comes to to economic models? Yeah. If, if you think about it, I mean, just think about your education, Jeff. I know that was only a couple of years ago, right? <laughs> uh, the, the form of most of your testing was there's a right answer and a whole bunch of wrong answers. Mm. And your job is to get the right answer. That would be the case if you had multiple choice in you know, all your standardized tests would have been multiple choice, SATs mm. and LSATs and GMATs and, and the like. But even in others, there's a right answer and a wrong answer. So you're you're teaching the student that there are certain answers, that life is certain and you can be certainly right and certainly wrong. Mm. That's simply not the way the world works and the economy works. There are things that are more productive and more righter than wrong, but most things, there are nuances and we don't teach that. We teach certainty, which is consistent with the perfectible machine. Figure out how to make the machine work perfectly and that's the right answer. Instead, we should be teaching that the world isn't that way. There are just paths you can head down that end up being, with feedback on that path, more productive and some less productive, and you're going to have to keep tweaking and tweaking and tweaking. And um, that is a different way of relating to other people. Right? <laughs> and, and, and all we have to do, again, is look at, at Washington to say, when you think there are certain right answers and certain wrong answers, mm. how do you behave? You behave as if you should fight to the death to have your right answer prevail and it will prevail for all time. Mm-hmm. And all you get is is the kind of gridlock. Mm-hmm. People are relatively disgusted by it for a good reason. Mm-hmm. But it all stems from a perfectible machine model where you should have certainty about the veracity of your answers. Mm-hmm. And that starts in kindergarten right. and it's inculcated the entire way through the educational uh, system. And I think educators have got to recognize the role they're playing in training people 
to produce the kind of thing we have in in uh, in Washington. Mm, good point. Well, Roger, I got a couple of questions, not directly related to the book that I want to shoot your way in the time we have left. Uh, before I do that, uh, anything else from the book you want to make sure we walk away with? No, I, th- I think you've uh, you've done a, a good run through of the of the core themes of the of the book uh, enough, hopefully, to get people interested in going deeper. That's the goal. That's the goal for mm-hmm. sure. Well, uh, speaking of books, what about a book or two through the course of your career you've encountered? What are books that, that you recommend to others or that you go back to? Is there a title or two that comes to mind when I ask that question? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would read uh, anything by Aristotle. Analytica Posteriora is his classic because he was really the first scientist and it was the most nuanced scientist. And then there's a recent one that I, that I read that just blew me away. It's called The Social Limits of Growth, mm-hmm. and it's by a guy named Hirsch, written in 1976, and sadly he died of ALS in 1977. But it discusses an idea that I just had never occurred to me, and I'll just give it to you quickly, which is he established the idea of positional goods. A positional good is a good that if I own it, it positions me against you in some way, right? Mm-hmm. So having the best property in the Hamptons. I have it and you don't have it, <laughs> right? And that yeah. then gives, confers to me some, some kind of status or acceptance into the entering class of uh, Harvard College or MIT or, or, or Stanford. He shows how that creates a limitation on the economy and the economy is becoming more a game of positional goods and the fight for positional goods and, and how that limits the growth of an economy. Great, great book. Just, yeah. a, you know, an idea uh, that, I, that had never, never occurred to me, but uh, it, was, it was good. So those would, be, those would be two things to read. Does he get into mindset at all? Uh, individual mindset, abundance versus scarcity or anything like that? Well, yeah, he shows how it, it, it impacts on, on societies, that you have this mm. war for positional goods that can never be kind of won, right? It's, right. There's, no, there's no winning in it, so it's sort of, uh, but it, it distorts all sorts of markets and distorts spending patterns. Mm. So, yes, yeah, it, it's uh, interesting. What's ahead for you and, and, your, and your team that uh, you're excited about and able to, to share? What, what kind of things are you working on? Well, I like writing, and so I'm I'm on to writing the next thing I've started. If anybody's interested, I I've started writing for Medium uh, that that ah. platform, and and uh, every Monday I I try and have another piece uh, out. Monday will be the third in a three part series on fear and how fear can rule you or you can rule fear. Mm. One of the things I, I really think about the world where we're in now with COVID is it is human nature to take the trend that you're observing and extrapolate it forever. Right. And so everybody's extrapolating. It's COVID's miserable now. So it's going to be miserable. We're going to have to learn to live with COVID, et cetera. For what it's worth, I, I do not believe that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I believe, and I've, and I've written about this, if you want to look for it on, on, on medium, there isn't a second wave happening in in the u.s now Mm. people say oh come on roger look at the look at the curves no Mm. uh there was a northern wave right a first northern wave that Mm. had that that crested in april may and there was a southern wave that wasn't in existence in april may and crested in in july august Mm. this pandemic 
comes to every geographic location. It infects and kills a number of people regardless of what you do, mm-hmm. right? It infects a bunch of them now. It kills fewer of them because we're getting better at treating people. Mm-hmm. And then it, it, it goes away. And if you haven't had enough of it, it will appear to have a second wave because oh. the first wave wasn't consequential enough. Right. That's what's happened in Melbourne, for for example, in, in uh, Australia. It's what happened in Louisiana. They had a mini Mardi Gras-induced wave and then their real wave uh, later. So mm. I think this will be behind us. Uh, it will be gone because that's how these viruses work. And mm. people are misinterpreting the statistics to create a narrative that says it's come back once already mm-hmm. and then there'll be a third wave yeah. and then there'll be a fourth wave and i don't mean to trivialize it there are yeah. a million people died worldwide mm. but that doesn't mean that we should lose our senses completely and not look at at, at the real underlying uh, mm. uh, structure of what's going on i mean i think we will have learned all all sorts of lessons about the fragility of the world and how these things can happen i agree with mm. with that but we are not going to be living with COVID for some indeterminate amount of time. Nope. I really appreciate that level-headed analysis. Thank you very much for that. Very, very well said. The name of the book, again, is When More is Not Better, Overcoming America's Obsession with Economic Efficiency. His name is Roger L. Martin. Roger, thank you so much for being my guest today. I really appreciate you spending time on the Read to Lead podcast. Uh, I, I appreciate the crafting of this on, on your part. Thank, thank you for, for being so knowledgeable. Well, at least for 30 minutes, right? <laughs> <laughs> for more on Roger, his work, the books he recommended, and the other links and resources we touched on, just visit the page I've created just for this episode. That is readtoleadpodcast.com slash 341 for episode 341. Please be sure and send your questions, suggestions, comments, and or feedback to me directly, Jeff, at readtoleadpodcast.com. And if you're so inclined, a rating and review in your podcast app of choice is always appreciated. Well, that about wraps it up for this week. Thanks for being here. I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead. 